recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 66 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong. And you can read my work, I suppose, at the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. You can also sign up for our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, there is so much going on right now, one of them being the Olympics, and I can't remember a time when the Olympics seemed to matter less than they do right now, but <laughs> have you followed them at all, at all? Uh, not really. You know, I, I, I watched some briefly yesterday, uh, you know, our, our, our daughter did a, uh, an Olympics-themed thing at at school mm-hmm. <laughs> so That's- we thought it'd be a good idea to sit down and uh, and watch some olympics we watch some gymnastics but that you know that's that's it. it it does it seems weird there's nobody there yeah um you know i was it, thinking about this i just i think the olympics are something that the pandemic is going to change probably forever as well but i just feel like there's no winners on this i mean like japan obviously they don't really want it there they're going through a big COVID outbreak um you know it's it's rough for all this money and attention we put on sports at a time like this you know but then the athletes like they don't have friends and family there and they're they're kind of under lockdown and it's just not it's just not a good thing for anybody really um but but yeah here we are and i mean there's there's commitments in terms of broadcasting and all these other things so the show has to kind of go on yeah but i mean even just watching the interviews with you know of course the the mics with the long extensions to be able to speak to the athletes from a safe distance and they're all masked and um yeah i mean and, and i get it i'm i'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be socially distancing but um again it just it it really sets the tone for the whole the whole product that you're 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 trying to sort of sit back and enjoy as entertainment right for sure um now we've got a lot to get into uh today you and so we're gonna head into the show quickly but we do have a bit of an announcement i think and um we have been getting some great feedback to this show and you and i've been doing quite a bit of talking and we're gonna take a little bit of a break uh, from the PR and Law podcast in August. So you can kind of consider this uh, a bit of a summer break. But when we come back, we are going to come back with um, a bit of a refreshed sound and a refreshed look. And we're quite excited about it. So uh, in the meantime, we won't be publishing over the next couple of weeks in August, but don't unsubscribe. Make sure you stay subscribed to the show and uh, you will see new episodes pop up again in September. Uh, sometime around Labor Day. So uh, that's kind of our announcement. So so hang in there, stay with us, and uh, we'll be back in September. 
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, what have you got on deck, Ewan? Well, I got a few things, Cam. So I'm going to try and uh, and keep keep this keep it brisk, sure. keep yeah. it moving. Um, the the first thing I wanted to talk about was an executive order that was signed by President Biden, arguing, um, I mean, among other things, that a, a lack of competition was increasing prices for consumers mm-hmm. and keeping wages down for workers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, among the 72 initiatives, Cam, in this executive order, um, one of them was, you know, an initiative to pressure the Federal Trade Commission to ban or at the very least impose some limits on non-compete agreements. So, you know, we've talked about non-competition clauses before on this show, right? And I think most of our listeners are probably generally familiar with them. That, you know, the idea somewhere in your employment agreement, there's a provision or a clause that would preclude you from being able to go out and and work for a direct competitor um, at the cessation of that employment relationship. You know, and the thinking behind this, of course, from an employer's perspective is, you know, you want to protect all of your trade secrets. You want to try and protect everything within your business that you possibly can and ensure that you don't have employees going out and effectively stealing from your business to the benefit of another one. Right. Right. Yep. And these are common. I mean, I I actually have it in my uh, contract as well. Um, It's there. There. I feel like they are quite common now, but as you told me earlier, offline these are now even enforced at at sort of retail level positions as well yeah i mean and that's kind of the crazy thing here right when you when you hear (laughs) non-compete you You sort of executive have yeah yeah you have you have this sort of idea or this image of you know senior executives at a bank or in finance or something like that where you've you know maybe a, a biotech firm where you know trade secrets um yeah. are, are are a serious thing but you know to put it in perspective there's an estimated 36 million workers in the u.s who are bound by some form of non-compete clauses as a condition of their employment and a lot of them are not senior executives cam a lot of them are you know sort of low wage workers minimum wage workers particularly those in large corporate environments you know mcdonald's fast food but what these secrets sorts of do they have or is it like how they make the shamrock shake or, or well or well exactly that's the thing it, it seems like it seems totally bizarre to 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 think that you know the fry guy or a fry person excuse me at, at mcdonald's might might have a non-compete clause um, mm-hmm. in their employment agreement but but yeah and more often than not you know they're just generally put into these agreements. So it's not even necessarily that the employer, or the employee have turned their mind to them. Um, it's only after the fact that you're an employee and you're going out looking for work and, you know, somebody might point out that, Hey, you've got this non-compete clause that prevents you from doing that. So, you know, Biden is trying at least, um, to, 
to kind of open up the market. The idea being, of course, that these these are unnecessary restrictions on workers and, you know, that they can make finding new work harder. Um, and that obviously limits competition in the marketplace, right? Yeah, we have to fight back against this kind of contract creep um, because you're right. Non-compete is something I understand why it exists. And I think it probably has to exist, in fact, but it should be very narrowly applied because it's too easy to just begin putting it in all contracts because why not? Um, I feel like NDAs kind of fall under this as well, non-disclosure agreements. It's just used for everything now. And um, it's just overuse and it puts shackles on everybody when there probably don't need to be shackles there while admitting that sometimes you do need those shackles. Sometimes you do need these agreements, but, but their use has just become far overblown in my view. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, at least here in Ontario, most of the non-compete clauses that I see are unenforceable anyway. And generally speaking, the court takes the position that they're, they're unenforceable, particularly when they're overbroad, right? Sometimes you see non-competition clauses in an agreement. You say you have somebody working in, I don't know, the, the real estate industry, for example, and they have a non compete clause that says you will not work for another, you know, real estate brokerage anywhere in Canada for the next 24 months. I mean, you know, what, what's that, what's that person yeah. supposed to do? Are they supposed to leave the country so they can <laughs> find a job? Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, I mean, often these, these clauses are remarkably overbroad, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see this come from the White House, um, them stepping up and saying, look, this is crazy and we need to increase competition in the marketplace. And the last thing we need, particularly as we're going through sort of an, an economic recovery, is situations where workers can't get jobs because they're bound by non-compete clauses in you know contracts they had with previous employers. Right, right. I don't like seeing politicians jump into these questions very often. But sometimes if it's not them, who is it going to be? And I think that's kind of where we're at, especially in the United States. So uh, I do. This is one of those things where I don't particularly like the method, but I do see the need in this case. And so I'm OK with it. Yeah, me me too. I'm I'm completely on side with this. I think it's a, a great initiative. I hope it ends up with some teeth, but we'll we'll see anyway. Um, moving on. This is another interesting story came across through the week, Cam, and, and that is Amazon is ending its use of private arbitration for its customer disputes. Right. So, so you know, yeah. How does this work? So, you know, a customer orders something from Amazon, there's some sort of problem. Amazon's not giving a refund or they've got some, some, some dispute like that. How does Amazon process that right now? Well, yeah. So if they, if you want to sue now, this is let's, let's be more specific here. So this is specific to Amazon products. So, we're talking about things like, you know, the Amazon Echo, which is one of the big, big issues where Amazon has run into some 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 legal hot water. Well, Amazon Anyone has using... millions of products now. Um, if you shop yes, on they... Amazon, you can see they make everything themselves. They well. do. They do. You're absolutely right. So, you know, anyone using Amazon products will now have to pursue their disputes uh, with the company in federal court as opposed to their private arbitration process. Now, why did the private arbitration process exist in the first place? Well, frankly, Hang it was on, you to the first, benefit. What, what is private arbitration process? What does that mean for a consumer who wants to do something? Right. So when you contract to purchase something from Amazon, part of that contractual agreement when you purchase something from them is that if you need to dispute anything with regard to that contractual relationship, 
that dispute will be resolved in a private arbitration. So Amazon will hire an arbitrator, which is the, the nature of their process. This arbitrator will come in. They will listen to your side of the dispute. They will listen to Amazon's side of the dispute. And then they will issue a binding decision. And that, right. that's it. That's how that's how the process works. I think most um, people would be surprised to know they have a contract with Amazon. I, I definitely think they don't think that way. Um, I mean, basically, when you buy an Amazon product, if you have an issue, you're going to have to go to this to this arbitrator to make a decision on it. And that arbitrator then is controlled by Amazon, right? You which is the main issue. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 exactly it. Um, and really, this is a whole sort of very, very clever way to ensure that you don't have customers going through the courts um, where all of these, you know, any of these decisions would be public, right. matter of public record. Mm -hmm. um, it also helps, it also helps companies avoid class actions, class proceedings, which can be very, very expensive. And of course, you know, you see decisions where the awards are absolutely massive. But what's sort of interesting here is, you know, we now what we do know and we don't, you know, Amazon hasn't explained why they're removing the private arbitration process. But, you know, what we do know is that they're facing right now about 75,000 arbitration claims uh, regarding issues with its products. Again, notably the, the Echo, um, you know, and you've probably seen stories, Cam, about, you know, allegations that the devices were recording users without mm -hmm. their knowledge and consent, mm -hmm. um, which obviously is a problem. Um, so, you know, the cost approximately for a single one of these arbitration cases, you know, it, Amazon's looking at a bill of about three grand, I mean, just to hire an arbitrator. So, you know, you multiply that by, say, 75,000 arbitration claims, and all of a sudden, Amazon is potentially out a good chunk of change to go through this process. Um, so they haven't exactly come forward to say that, well, we're not going to do it anymore because it's costing us too much money. But um, that's likely part of the reason as to why they're not doing this anymore. Right. And so now if you have an issue, you do have to go to federal court, right? So you've got to get a lawyer yeah. or somebody and, and do it that way. That's the policy. Now, I, I mean, I guess you could probably self self rep. Um, but that's, you know, that that's obviously your decision as a as a consumer, whether or not you want to uh, to, to be your own representative or whether to seek counsel to to represent represent you in so your, in you your and matter, from, right? from your point of view. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for consumers? You know, I think it's probably a good thing. Um, you know, the whole idea of this private arbitration thing and, and you know, it, it's problematic, right? It's problematic because the terms are dictated by the companies more often than not. So it's not a balanced process. It's not like, you know, you're coming to this process as a consumer on an equal playing field. You really aren't. Um, whereas the courts, by definition, I mean, they have to be a more neutral arbiter of justice. Now, whether or not that's actually the case, obviously, you know, um, remains to be seen. But at least from the get go, the idea being that the court is a neutral arbiter of justice, um, whereas a lot of these arbitration processes are really stacked in favor of the company. You know, often they choose the, the location of the arbitration. They get to choose the arbitrator. They can impose fees on, on the consumer in terms of what they have to pay to participate in the process. So, you know, if, if it was me, um, yeah, hey, I'd, I'd much rather take my chances 
in court and go down that road than than some sort of private arbitration process. Yeah, that makes a whole lot more sense. It's just a more standard way as well to deal with these sorts of things. Um, what else have you got, Ewan? Well, this was just a very, very quick one, Cam, just to, just to close out because I thought this was kind of kind of a, a funny story. The National Labor Relations Board um, has ruled, Cam, that the use of giant inflatable props, notably rats, uh, mm-hmm. typically used to illustrate, uh, you know, a union's view of a particular employer's yep. practices um, is not an illegal picket, but rather it's a permissible um, effort by union workers to persuade bystanders. So why was this, this come about? Yeah. Why was this even a question? Yes, exactly. So the, the decision involved union officials who had placed a 12 foot inflatable rat with with beady red eyes and fangs oh, awesome. at, the, at the entrance of a trade show um, in, in in Indiana back in 2018. The, the rat included a, a banner accusing Lippert components of uh, harboring rat contractors. You know, Lippert argued that the rat was a legal coercion as it was trying to prevent visitors from from entering this particular trade show. But the the Labor Relations Board, Cam, they found that the the rat was a protected form of expression um, rather than a coercive intimidation tactic. So the rat lives on, Cam. Giant inflatable rats um, you remain know, a, a permissible <sighs> tactic. So there you go. So this company that brought this forward to try and, I guess, get their angry workers not to use a rat... Um, that would have been a decision, probably with input from the communications team, in fact. And it's too bad that that went forward because I always think these things, I should be careful with the word always, most of the time, these things just make the company look insecure and bad. And instead of trying to fight against having a rat used at a trade show, they should probably try and improve relations with their employees. But that's one sort of uninformed view of whatever that was about. But I just think, you know, companies just look really fragile. Uh, when they try and fight these kinds of things. And it's just a, it's just a bad look, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of like the idea uh, of knowing that there are 12-foot inflatable rats Oh, I'm sure it there. looks great. <laughs> I'll have to find a picture of that. <laughs> so it's tied to, tied to uh, you know, work, workers' rights. So anyway, that, that's it, Cam. That, that's all I've got for the week. Awesome. Yeah, that's tons of interesting stuff in there. So let's head over to the PR side. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You and we've talked a lot about uh, the changing nature of work. Uh, post-pandemic. And actually, it looks like uh, people are going to be doing more work from home again in many parts of the world as the Delta variant continues to spread. But Twitter uh, went uh, on Twitter this week to talk about how it sees the future of work. And it's actually a tweet storm that was put together by Jennifer Christie, uh, who is their HR head. Uh, no relation, we should Twitter. say. No uh, relation. No, no, no relation. You Although I'm sure she's a wonderful person. I'm sure she is. With, with a great last name. <laughs> she did her own little tweet storm, and um, this is what it had to say. Last year brought its challenges, but also opportunities to change how we think about work. 
Today, we're focused on building upon the progress we've made so far by establishing innovative and effective approaches that make our teams more efficient, productive, and diverse. Key to our progress is promoting a level playing field in the experiences and opportunities we create for our tweeps with the goal of working as one inclusive team, regardless of whether they choose to work from home full-time at the office or a combination of both. We've learned a lot about our workplace, our sorry, our workforce over the past year, and what we know is that Tweeps want greater flexibility with their work. We're focused on building the best practices that promote an inclusive and equitable experience at Twitter. So you and here they are. There are three big ones. First one, Words matter. We are rethinking the terminology used in the workplace and want to replace words like remote or decentralized. For more inclusive words, our tweeps can use to signal where they and their teams are, such as work from home, work from office, or work from both. The second one, we are taking an async first approach to how we work, embracing communication and collaboration practices that don't require others to be available at the same time or place. Working async allows us to be more global and diverse, helps us to do better work, and offers more flexibility. The third one we're building an agile workplace as we begin to safely reopen offices. We're piloting ways to reconfigure our spaces to better support hybrid work and curating spaces for different work activities from quiet areas to those dedicated to collaborating and socializing. Uh, she goes on with some of the PR speak of what they're doing. But I mean, I think that the three points there um, are, are, are quite uh, succinct. So no more saying remote work. Uh, asynchronous is going to be something that they focus on and redesigning the office basically to, you know, accommodate for the fact that um, not everyone's going to be there all the time, depending on what they choose to do. Now, personally, I don't find any of this that innovative. I think it's pretty, especially the last one. I think we are seeing out of the pandemic that a lot of a lot of companies are looking at their office space and probably going to reduce the amount of office space that they have. Um, so I think that one's quite quite common. Um, the async part, uh, I don't know if the, you've come across this, Ewan, but it's coming up a lot more. And I think that is something a little bit new. And as for the terminology, remote work to me is a little more inclusive to me uh, because it doesn't require you declare the specifics. So I kind of felt the other way on this one. But what do you think? Well, yeah, the the first one, I mean, I mean, really, this is semantics, right? And is it do we have to try and reinvent the wheel here? Is is the language that we're currently using negative in its connotations? And because I, I tend to agree with you. Well, she's I, saying I think, it's not uh, inclusive. But to me, if you have to declare the details of what you're doing, that that's less inclusive. But maybe I'm crazy. Yes. And I, I also like if, we, if we're talking about inclusivity, I much prefer remote to work from home. Um, because what if you to your point? What if you are not working from home? What if you are what if you are working from elsewhere? Um, I mean, remote work is arguably more inclusive because it could denote any particular location rather than, quote unquote, home, wherever that may be. Well, I mean, they say you should declare work from home, work from office, work from both. But is there work from Disneyland, <laughs> you know, because you're right, or work from Starbucks, because you, you might actually be somewhere else. And now do you have to declare that? Um, or should should employees have to declare that? 
Um, I don't know. These are these are kind of big questions, but I was a bit confused by that first one, like you were. The second one being uh, async. Now, this is a term. I know it's been around a while. I've come across it just in the past few months, mainly over uh, there's a kind of a push in software in this area as well, where you can have um, asynchronous meetings where you can join a, a meeting theoretically, and maybe not everybody is there, but you can say your part or give your presentation. And then it kind of sits there. And then maybe someone else joins a meeting a few hours later, goes in, you're not there, but they can press play on your presentation and watch it. So, so it, it doesn't require everyone be there at the same time. This is interesting to me. I don't know. I mean, I, I understand in theory how this works. I'm very curious to see how it's implemented in a lot of places. But have you have you come across this at all, Ewan? Yeah, I have. Although, like you know, I I I feel like asynchronous is sort of the 2021 corporate speak of I don't know synergy. Yeah, could um, be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some other some other um, inflection catchphrases. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think you know the word is being thrown around such that companies feel that they have to now have an asynchronous program and nobody's really sort of sitting around and asking the question of, do we actually need this? Is it going to be beneficial or is it just a matter of they have one? So we have to make sure that we have one as well. Yeah. Companies are leaning into the asynchronous thing talk. That's for sure. I I am curious though on this because I, I can see benefits, right? Like if you can pull this off, you could be solving some problems, although there's going to be situations, again, I'm thinking in communications, where certain meetings, this will not work. You, you, you do need everybody there, you know, having a back and forth, sometimes quickly, if it's something that's in the news or something emerging. But I think for a lot of other things, this 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 might be an option. And then, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, we don't need everybody sitting in front of their computers watching the same presentation at the same time. Yeah. You know, in, in, in that regard, it's almost like, you know, uh, on demand video content. We don't need everybody to watch the new episode of such and such program on Netflix the same date and time. Um, they can watch it when they feel like watching it. It will still have the same impact. Um, it will still resonate in the same way, right? So, yeah, I think I think there's certainly some constructive um, efficiencies and advantages that can be extracted from asynchronous policy and i and i i do think it's ultimately good a good direction to move but again i think like so many other subjects we talk about on the show cam we need some sort of clear blueprints for what it looks like rather than just hey we're gonna go asynchronous just for the sake of saying we're going to go asynchronous yeah completely agree on that i i think some companies might not even know what this really means yet um it's 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 quite new um and then the last one on the the redesigning of offices i i like i say i do think we're going to see more of this i know that there have been some other sort of people in 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 economics and in the finance world talking about uh, a big decline in office value and property values in in big office buildings just because they might not be used to the same degree that they were before but on on the flip side of that companies are still going to need some space right so how do you design it where it's going to have where it's going to be useful to people still. And so, I mean, she talks about, uh, Jennifer Christie at Twitter talks about having, um, you know, space for other activities like quiet areas or focus areas where you can bring people together to speak, you know, that that kind of thing. And I, I like this as well. I think these... 
these areas do help. And, you know, when I left the exchange, we had set aside an entire floor for this kind of thing. And it was a great place to go hang out, actually. And I did go up there and work sometimes in that kind of a setting. And I, I quite enjoyed it. And I think this this is uh, this is useful as well. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. Um, I mean, this is this is sort of one of those issues where I do feel like a bit of a dinosaur in that I, I, I like the idea of going to my place of work and knowing I have a fixed office space with, with my stuff that is ultimately, ultimately mine. Um, but, you know, I, I think those days might fall by the wayside, Cam, because uh, it's, it's not really an efficient use of space, right? Um, and there are, there are certainly more affordable and cheaper alternatives that I think companies are going to lean into right now for the sake of, of trimming the fat. Yeah, and I don't necessarily mean one is going to cancel out the other. I think, you know, I think in many businesses, there will be executives that still have their office space, right? But it's just a matter of if you've got a big team, do they all need to be at the work at work at the same time? Do you need all of those cubicles now? Can you redesign the open space a bit better? That sort of thing. So it, it really, I think it's going to be quite dependent on that business and that how that business operates, you know, how many people that business needs, that sort of thing. And it's going to be, inter- it really will be interesting to see how different companies approach this, because I think there's a lot of room here for, for innovation and for testing things out and seeing what works. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see where this goes. All right, you. And the other thing I just wanted to mention, this really surprised me. I know we've talked a little bit of hockey and sports on this podcast. This is related to sports, but it's not really a sports story. And I don't know if you came across this, you and over the last week, but the the Montreal Canadiens NHL team has has selected, you know, in the first round, at the end of the first round of the, the NHL draft, where sort of teenagers are selected by, by NHL teams, uh, a guy by the name of Logan Mayu. Now, I had heard uh, maybe a few weeks ago that he had come out and said, I'm, I don't want to be drafted. I don't want to be picked. And why is that? Well, because he is, he is facing, you know, some difficult charges in Sweden uh, relating to an incident where he shared some promiscuous photos of himself with a young woman there. And it became extremely embarrassing to her. And it was an awful thing to do. And teams were basically told, like, stay away from this kid. He's not a good kid. And he came out and said, don't don't draft me. And Montreal went ahead and did it anyway. And naturally, this has become quite a bit of an issue. The team put out a statement that said, the Canadians are aware of the situation and by no means minimize the severity of Logan's actions. Logan understands the impact of his actions. His recent public statement is a genuine acknowledgement of his poor behavior and the first step on his personal journey. Thoughts, Ewan? The first step on his personal journey? Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't like this from the Habs. I really don't. And also it, it strikes me that should be a statement that he should be issuing himself, not the organization on his behalf. I certainly understand why the organization has to issue a statement and why it has to strike the, the tone that they've, that they've ultimately struck. But it, it just strikes me as as hollow because 
it's a message that he himself should be putting forward. And it doesn't seem like it's a message he's interested in putting forward. You know, he did come out and, and uh, say, don't, don't draft me. I've, you know, I've got to learn some things. This was several weeks before the draft. Uh, Montreal went ahead and did it anyway. And he's since come out and he thanked the Habs for doing it. And he says he's going to work on being a better person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, the, the upsetting part of this, and, and again, from a communications perspective, this is disastrous, right? I mean, the, I think it's, it's a, a black eye for the league again, in general, and, and especially for the, for the Montreal team, because there were, the teams all knew of this incident and were staying away from him. Now, Montreal has sort of hinted that other teams were prepared to take this guy. Uh, and so they just jumped up and, and did it anyway. But right. But I mean, sorry to interrupt, Cam, but I mean, ultimately, sure, they can say that we we don't ultimately know exactly any other team was going to formally make him an offer. Right. And it strikes me that there is sort of an unspoken understanding within the league that no, none of us for the betterment of the league and for the image of the league are going to touch this guy, leave him alone. And then Montreal says, yeah, thanks. Um, No, 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 we're we're, going to go do our own thing in that regard. Yeah, when they made this pick, it was shocking. Like it was shocking because no, no one expected a team to do this, let alone in the first round. I mean, this was a this was a very, very startling development on that day. And and I gotta say, you know, sports in general. I mean, obviously, there's issues. The NFL has had issues with with domestic uh, violence. You know, there's been other players. There was a, a hockey player, I think, a year ago who also had some incident in Europe and was released by a team once they found out. Um, I, I think the standard of behavior, the, the the requirements of good behavior are increasing and being enforced more often. And I think that's what makes this one so surprising is because it does kind of fly in the face of progress made elsewhere. And I think just, you know, there's not too much to say on this. I think it's it's awful. It's unfortunate that they, they made this decision uh, and probably just kind of another example of, you know, sports, uh, taking precedent sometimes over people's lives. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. You have one more thing to mention on that, Ewan? <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. Go I'm for sorry, it. Cam. Go for it. Uh, well, I, w- I was curious, you know, what was the league's perspective on this? Because it strikes me that this is the sort of thing where the league itself may have wanted to take a position and perhaps did and was sort of hoping that it could be done sort of under the radar without having to, to issue a public statement themselves where, you know, they sort of speak with management and ownership of, of the teams to say, look, we're, we're effectively, we're not, we're not going to touch this guy and you are not going to touch this guy either. That's the end of it. Um, so the, the you know, yeah, the league uh, didn't want anyone to take this player. Uh, that was that was clear, but there is no rule against it. Uh, if if a player is of eligible age, he can be selected, and and already there's been some discussion of should the league have this power to actually say no, this person won't be picked. Um, well, yeah, because right now I mean, they don't. Is that, is that like a debatable issue? I mean, why shouldn't the league have that have that power? I mean, if if, if you know they're running the league, they get to determine who who plays in the league. I mean, what? Why not? I mean, I guess this is probably an NHLPA issue. It probably falls, perhaps falls under the purview of the union. I I, I mean, again, I, I I don't begin to understand how that process. Well, you start going works, down, but... a, I suppose, a slippery slope, and I hate that phrase, but I mean, if if the league is starting to determine or could rule out people on its own without any oversight. 
I can see how that could be challenged at some point, but I mean, this, this situation just shouldn't have happened. I mean, that's just the bottom line. So, so something has to be done to fix this because it's broken and it's not a good look and it needs to be fixed. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Now we can now on, what have you got doc? <laughs> well, Cam, I watched, um, Friday night, the, the HBO documentary on Woodstock 99. Oh, I, I've seen this pop up, but I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, um, I, w- I was really, I'd, I'd been sort of watching the trailers and was really sort of interested to check this out. So the title is Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this was this was a pretty fascinating doc. Well worth your time, I think, Cam. You know, I guess there are so many questions I had watching this. Notably, how were we ever living in a world where the top rated acts in America were Limp Biscuit, Corn, and Kid Rock? Yeah. <laughs> was that right? how it was in 99? That was 99. Yeah. Now, granted, I mean, you also had, I mean, the actual headliners were Metallica and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, but, you know, you had those acts and then, oh, and Rage Against the Machine. Those are sort of the three, the three headliners. But then under those three bands, yeah, I mean, the next, the next sort of big ones were Limp Biscuit, Corn, and Kid Rock. Um, there are so many scratch your head moments in this, in this documentary that sort of demonstrate how it was basically a foregone conclusion that this festival was going to go sideways. Yeah. And and I remember back then, I mean, I was a lot younger, obviously, but there were stories everywhere of just what a debacle that whole festival was. And yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to watch it for sure, dog. So I appreciate your endorsement. I have a weird one. I want to talk about Joan Rivers. (laughs) I was going down the rabbit hole of of various articles uh, just over the weekend, as I sometimes do. And I ended up on an article called uh, How Joan Rivers Got That Way. And it was published in The New Yorker. And it was actually published way back in 2016. Um, she has uh, passed away, as I think is, is well known. I first came across Joan Rivers, Ewan, when I was a kid watching Hollywood Squares. Yeah, that's and, right. And she was with on Shadow that. Stevens. It was Shadow Stevens. Shadow Stevens. And I, I thought, uh, she seemed like an old lady then. And, and kind of quirky and loud and opinionated. And... You know, I didn't know her. I mean, that was towards the end of her career, actually. I mean, she she performed in, in the 60s. She was a stand-up comedian and, and did all, you know, she was a regular on Johnny Carson's show and ha- had quite a career. But this is a really interesting look at sort of how the world that she grew up in and sort of the lessons that she learned and shaped her and how it's so different to what's happening today. And it compares her a little bit to Lena Dunham the star of, of Girls. And in fact, Joan Rivers talks about Lena Dunham in part of this in an interview with Howard Stern. And it's sort of printed here. And it's really quite fascinating, the change, especially with regards to feminism uh, and acceptance, um, you know, body shaming, those sorts of issues. Um, it's just a really interesting, really interesting read. It made me really interesting, sort of it made me really interested in, in who she was. And so if you want to sit down and just read something really enlightening that will kind of captivate you all the way through, this would be, this would be it. I think you and, you know, we can almost recommend New Yorker articles probably every week because they, they do this on the yes. regular. Um, but this one stands out for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and I mean, yeah, she fascinating character, right? Joan Rivers did not have three acts or four acts or Joan Rivers had like a hundred acts in her career. She'd Mm -hmm. sort of kind of disappear for a year or two and then come back doing something different, just constantly reinventing herself. And 
finding some way to stay in the stay in the limelight and stay stay relevant. It's a really remarkable accomplishment for such a, a long, long career. Yeah. And I mean, it points out that, um, you know, Johnny Carson didn't bring female performers, female stand up comedians onto a show. He said women are not funny was his view um, until he brought Joan Rivers on and he, he liked her a lot. And so he brought her back a lot. Um, you know, she filled in for him sometimes. Um, until he found out that she was maybe going to do a show on Fox that would compete with his. And uh, she phoned him up and he hung up on her and he never spoke to her again. And there was a ban on having Joan Rivers on The Tonight Show that persisted after Johnny Carson uh, to, to, to Jay Leno and to Conan O'Brien and was only recently broken when uh, Jimmy Fallon had her on just before she died. Uh, so it was a ban that lasted a very long time. So... Very wow, I had I had no idea. I'd never heard that before. It's yeah, crazy. That was new to me as well. Mm. All right. Well, just a reminder again, please stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break in the month of August. We hope you enjoy your summer and uh, hopefully you can get out and do some things and COVID isn't too bad wherever you might live. Uh, and we will be back in September with some all new content. That's right. See you in September. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, anything else, Ewan, you want to say before we uh, put the final episode uh, before our break into the books? <laughs> no, no, I'm looking forward to the break, but also looking forward to come coming back. Um, you know, new, new and improved. Um, very, very exciting. Uh, really, really looking forward to that. So, and as uh, always, thanks. send us send us issues. If you come across anything, I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of issues crop up in August as well. Uh, yeah, affecting PR communications employment law whatever it might be send it over to us we could talk about it on a future show yeah and just thanks to all the listeners that have uh have stuck with us to this point um, yeah well said. You guys thank you well said so thanks for joining us again this week don't miss a show when we come back uh in september please subscribe in your podcast app of choice uh or you can always listen to our show on youtube and soundcloud you can follow us on social as well so make sure you click the follow button on facebook instagram twitter and linkedin and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Have a fantastic summer and light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.